Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Commonwealth Club and founder of Climate One. Climate One convenes leaders from business, government, and civil society to advance solutions to climate change. Tonight's program is also brought to you by Inforum, a division of the Commonwealth Club, by people in their 20s and 30s with a mission to inspire debate on civic issues. All of us up here are, I promise you, members of Inforum. <laughs> uh, you can find us online at commonwealthclub.org Inforum. Tonight we're talking about cl- climate countdown, can the world cut a deal? Last month, 11,000 people met in Poland at the United Nations Climate Summit, part of a two-year process outlined in Bali to try to move towards a comprehensive multilateral agreement on climate change. All four of us were there, and we're here now to talk about how governments, business, and civil society can come together to create plans for action and real solutions and what will happen in the next 11 months on the road to Copenhagen. Tonight, we welcome Tony Brunello, who's Deputy Secretary of the California Resource Agency for Energy and Climate Change. Before working for California, Tony worked in Europe and Russia and Asia for public and sector organizations, including the Pew Center on Global Climate Change and the World Bank. Next to Tony is Louis Blumberg, Director of California Forest and Climate Policy for the Nature Conservancy. He previously was a Deputy uh, Secretary at the California Forestry and uh, Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. And also joining us is Amy Christensen, founder and CEO of Christensen Global Strategies. Amy previously worked for the Department of Energy, the World Bank, Google.org, and has uh, numerous clients, including the Clinton Global Initiative and the United Nations uh, Development Program. So please give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to our panel today. Uh, Amy, I'd like to to start with you, uh, and what can you tell us about sort of the main accomplishments from the UN summit in Poland, and what was the the tone like there? Main accomplishments, a hard place to start. Um, I think the biggest takeaway from Poland was really was that it was this midway point between Bali where the governments had agreed on a roadmap. And I think the greatest accomplishment of Bali was to say that we must come to agreement on the next stage for the Kyoto Protocol for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change among governments at COP15, which is this December in Copenhagen. And so Poznan was an opportunity for governments to get together and really lay out their positions and their priorities going into Copenhagen. There was, my sense, a lot of waiting for the United States to have new leadership and therefore uh, not the breakthroughs that a number of people would have hoped for um, and a recognition that we now, therefore, have a great deal of work to do over the next 11 months. Uh, The key issues before us are technology transfer to developing countries and financing, um, adaptation funding to support those developing countries who are going to be impacted the most from climate change and increasing the funding available to them, Uh, the recognition of the value of standing forests. So how do we avoid uh, continued rapid deforestation of our standing forests, which is critical for a number of key developing countries like Brazil, uh, Indonesia, Congo, and others. Um, And that will be very important to a deal in December as well, as well as the fundamentally what are the new targets uh, and timetables for developed countries, industrialized countries like the United States, Europe, and others. And um, how do we really engage effectively countries like China and India who have rapidly growing emissions, and how do we cut that global deal in December? So it, um, for me, the takeaway was how much we have to do between now and December in order to come to a, a global deal in Copenhagen and what that means here in the United States. Everyone is expecting, the expectations were so high given the election of Barack Obama, um, and what I saw was a number of congressional staffers trying to tamp down expectations from countries to say, fundamentally, uh, concerns remain regionally, um, certain states, uh, and therefore their members of Congress and Senate, who will um, be worried about the cost impacts of regulating carbon. Those issues continue regardless of who's president, and really trying to tamp down expectations of what would be able to be accomplished over this next year. 
And yet, the United States will have a very hard time getting developing countries, rapidly industrializing countries like China and others, to step forward and take action on climate change if the United States is not able itself to have taken action domestically to reduce emissions between now and December. So um, the takeaway for me was... um, I I was worried about the tamping down of expectations. We need momentum. Um, The international negotiations are at such a delicate point. Uh, There's so much cynicism about really can we come to a deal? Isn't this just too difficult? And yet we have to because of the science and what scientists are increasingly telling us. And so uh, for me it really is a work plan between uh, over these next few months to ensure that we change the politics of this issue domestically to enable Congress to act and to enable the Obama administration to act quickly to address greenhouse gas emissions and to incentivize um, Um, the uh, putting in place of a price on carbon um, as well as the clean energy futures. Louis Blumberg, uh, Amy mentioned deforestation, which was not part of the Kyoto process or a very small part of it. Uh, What happened on deforestation at the Poland summit? Well, um, like the overall treaty, there were no major breakthroughs, but I think that we reaffirmed the commitment that there will be a mechanism to reduce emissions from deforestation, forest degradation uh, in the next treaty. And we made some uh, progress by clarifying the technical issues that need to be resolved in the next six months. And I think uh, addressing forest loss is really critical for the next treaty because 20 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions come from forest loss. And if we don't deal with this, we won't be successful with our climate policy. More emissions come from forest loss in the transportation sector Uh, deforestation is the second largest source of emissions globally. So it's critical that we have a robust and an expanded role for forests in the next treaty. What's the first source? Burning of fossil fuels. Okay. Uh, Tony Brunello, the AB32 scoping plan, uh, Assembly Bill 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act, was uh, finalized right around, right at the very end of, uh, of this summit. How does that connect? That's the main legislative vehicle uh, in California for reducing greenhouse gases. How does that connect to the international United Nations pro- uh, process? Um, obviously makes for, works first. First thing I was going to say, what was interesting, I'll get, and I was just going to go to the AB32, I thought mm-hmm. a quick little story was very apropos of there were four of us from the state who went to Poland to represent all of you in the state that we're trying to move ahead on climate change. What was uh, one of the most interesting things that I thought was to share with, was that when you went there, you had all the different offices of all the different countries that you could walk through, and the different NGOs had their offices right in the middle of all the operations. So every day, everybody would interact and be through these offices. And it was like a conference where you could actually, you knew that each country had asked how their different booth would be set up. So I thought it was very apropos as I was walking in and listening to President Bush just give his final announcement uh, at the White House that when you walked through these rooms in Poland, uh, basically, you'd walk by the Chinese delegation. There were windows. It was open. I felt like I could have walked in and had coffee. You'd walk through to the India delegation. Same thing. Most of the European ones, it opened. Door always open. You went to the United States delegation. All closed walls. And there was a sign out front that said, only official personnel. So as, as we, it was very appropriate. Uh, no barbed wire? No barbed wire. Okay. But as we, we were speaking quite closely with our Brazilian colleagues and Indonesian colleagues who laughed that those from the states were part of the national delegation. And they laughed at us where we had to lobby to even get a meeting with any of our official delegates. So that was sort of the perception from outsiders just as you would have walked in. And I think it more or less said what happened. But to get to the AB32, it was perfect timing. I think one of the things that we walked away with and we've continued to walk away with is that we're actually on the right path. We can communicate in the same language with the international community, and our path of doing a cap-and-trade system under AB32 is a way that many are talking about, but it's not just cap-and-trade, and And that's that's something that I hope we'll get to in the, the, uh, the questions. It takes a more comprehensive policy. As Amy's talking about, we need renewable energy. We need our low carbon fuel standards. We need a waiver one day. So all these things are, they're part of a larger perspective, and so while we were there, we felt that we were in the same path as the international community. By waiver, you mean? Uh, good point. There is a bill called the Pavley legislation that essentially is trying to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles. And we've been waiting, I think, since 2002 to get an approval for this through the U.S. In, uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, we have hopes that something will come through with the new administration. And so with this, uh, we'll be able to implement our AB32 goals, which is to significantly reduce emissions from transport, which is one of our biggest emissions from the state. 
lot of you've mentioned U.S. federal policy, so let's talk about cap and trade. Uh, at the governor's climate summit, Governor Schwarzenegger's climate summit in November, President-elect Obama came out with a very strong statement saying he supports cap and trade. Anyone who supports that as a friend in the White House, he now says. Uh, and yet, since that time, there's been some mixed messages about whether cap and trade legislation will happen this year. Nancy Pelosi just a couple of weeks ago said maybe not this year. So is it going to happen this year? And then we'll get into sort of you know, what the pieces of it will be. Well, well, I'll jump in. I think you can see momentum already starting to build before uh, President-elect Obama has been inaugurated. And there's, there was a hearing today um, at the, in the House of Representatives that Henry Waxman from California chaired where a proposal was put on the table by a coalition of environmental and uh, business groups called the U.S. Climate Action Partnerships. And, right. um, and, and uh, Chair, Chairman Waxman said he thought he could get a bill out by, the, by Memorial Day and deliver an uh, environmental win for uh, President Obama. So I think momentum is building uh, at the federal level. It's, it's like the races, that, like the gun's about to shoot and the race is going to go off. Uh, and so uh, we're optimistic that, that we'll make progress at the federal level. Amy Christensen, you've worked with a number of business clients getting support. I mean, where is business? Do they want this to happen this year or are some dragging their feet hoping it uh, happens next year? Maybe never. Certainly business is not a monolith. Uh, yeah. so if there's anything I've learned over the years, that's it. And But what we're seeing is we're seeing, I remember back in 1997 in the run-up to Kyoto, um, there was a great deal of business pressure not to do anything and yet there were a few voices being organized by Tony's old organization, the Pew Center on Climate Change and their Business Environmental Leadership Council getting out there and saying actually there are businesses who do want us to address climate change and that they see it as a way to incentivize innovation and opportunities for profit from clean technologies. What we're seeing is that segment of business growing much more quickly than we have in the past. The technologies are ready, they're they're competitive and so those businesses are increasingly raising their voices and saying as we did with AB32, I lobbied for AB32 on behalf of Google uh, with a group of clean tech companies saying regulate carbon puts a price signal and a predictability for investors who are investing in clean technology. They need that uh, price signal to increase their investments uh, and enable the kind of returns they're looking for over the long term. And that business voice is incredibly important as we move forward in a time of economic crisis. And certainly Barack Obama has recognized that the clean energy economy can be the engine of our economic recovery. He said this multiple times, and he's personally very engaged in the energy aspects of the stimulus package development. Uh, and so those are all great signs for us that business is having an impact. Certainly um, I was involved with a group called Clean Tech for Obama during the campaign, and that voice is very important to make the economic case for action and change the politics of this. You were at the Bali summit. Uh, was there a difference in the business presence and engagement in Poland versus Bali? That's a great question. Uh, and there were um, many more business representatives in Bali. I think they saw, uh, that was my sense anyway, was the participation was much more robust. And maybe it was because Bali's perhaps in December is nicer than Poland in December. Um, but, but, um, but there is a core group of business people who are very engaged in this, whether they're involved in the um, greenhouse gas emissions trading markets internationally uh, and really trying to weigh in domestically and what that looks like and therefore really want to understand how the U.S. will fit into the international trading regime. There's always a core group of business uh, and investors uh, participating in these, understanding the business implications of agreement internationally, but I did see uh, greater participation, certainly in Bali, feeling like that was a more critical point where we needed to see a signal for where we were going to be going to the next stage of the Kyoto talks. I was just going to add on that as well. I think the, the industry perspective is amazing to watch the progression. I know when I was at Pew back in 99, we had these leader companies, and they were still a little bit of outliers. Last year, when there was uh, the key piece of legislation, the cap-and-trade, that was called the Lieberman-Warner Bill, as that moved forward, it went through these committees in Capitol Hill and Congress. When you talk to the staffers on Capitol Hill, they said they had never seen so many lobbyists come through for a specific legislation because cap-and-trade is exactly what it means. It's a cap on the entire economy. It's about 75%. There's some that you leave out. But that means all stakeholders are coming to the table. So they're seeing everybody. And I, another story is when I was in uh, my first... UN meeting was back in, I think, 2001. It was mainly the policy wonks, and I didn't get many free dinners, or you didn't have many people invited, inviting you to parties. At Bali, it was amazing, of different groups trying to invite you to different events. It was quite warm, and there were a few palm trees there, I think. But, um, <laughs> but uh, it was truly amazing, a little disheartening, to see how much money was being put in there in order to lobby different groups on their different positions. So the world has changed, and I think obviously seeing Lieberman Warner go through, and I think most industry right now would definitely, they see the writing on the wall, and if you don't, you're probably going to go out of business soon. 
Lewis, how about in forests? Are you seeing the forest com- companies and paper companies? Are you seeing any shifting there in terms of who's sort of on what side of the uh, the bait around deforestation? Um, well, I think that there's pretty much agreement within the forest community, forest industry, and environmental groups that we need to stop emissions from deforestation. And there are a lot of tools that we can use, and we need all the tools. We're going to need all the tools. So uh, there's a agreement on that, 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 that goal, we share that goal. How we get there, the details are yet to be worked out, and, and that'll, that'll be some, um, take some work to do. But we have a model in California that has been developed uh, through AB32 and the California Forest Project Protocol. Calls, uh, and we're sharing that. We're working hard to share that with the international community. And we've had great success here in, in California with this program, and uh, we think it really can help um, bring people together and shed some light on how we can do this on an international level. And I think that's one of the key outcomes of the Governor's Summit last November is it created a, a linkage between international forest carbon work and our uh, California cap-and-trade activity from state to state. So we want to see that same kind of activity from nation to nation on an international basis. You mentioned details, and one of the details that's uh, central to a lot of this is is the auctions. What percentage of uh, carbon emissions are, are auctioned off versus granted away to industry? And uh, in the AB32 scoping plan, I believe, Tony, there was language that California will move toward 100% auctions. Is that right? Of- that was That's what's been proposed in the scoping plan. And for those who are uh, unfortunately plagued by language of scoping plans or other things, and God bless you, I hope you don't know. Uh, but a uh, scoping plan is just, it's a preliminary plan we laid out to implement our Global Warming Solutions Act that uh, was, was passed in 2006. But in the plan, if you don't have it, you should go on to the governor's website. It's very interesting, comprehensive. But uh, just to go into that aspect, there are many details that we've laid out uh, in terms of the allocation in particular where we think uh, we do need to collect revenues, and we do need to put it towards areas that are going to be more burdened uh, under a cap-and-trade program. We haven't made specific rules yet because right, what, what has been done is a scoping document to narrow, to put blinders on where we're going to go in the state. But over the next year is when we'll be having public hearings that will go into much more detail on what's the rulemaking process because the board approved to move ahead with the law. Now we actually have to implement it and actually put the meat on the bone, so to say. So it's a vague question. We don't have an answer yet, but we do want to eventually move to a 100% auction system to collect revenue. And the reason I mention that is that around the time of the Poland summit, the European Union relaxed some of its rules requiring certain industries in certain countries in Eastern Europe to get to that 100%. So, Amy, how do you see this playing out? You've worked in carbon trading for a long time. Uh, Is is 100% auction uh, a goal that's going to be realized? And how do you see that unfolding both between, say, California has different measures, Europe European Union has different numbers. This is all going to come together into one global system? Mm. But prognosticating is always dangerous, so I'm probably not going to directly answer your question. Um, however, I think what we're seeing is a lot of pushback given the economic hardship that we're seeing globally, not just here in the United States. And so what we saw simultaneously with the Poland climate talks, there was a conversation among all the European finance ministers talking about how we should be addressing climate change. And there was a very robust debate between the opportunity created by the green economy and should we continue to regulate and push businesses to address greenhouse gas emissions and see that as an economic opportunity for clean energy and other sectors to create jobs versus the more traditional, no, we need shovel-ready what people are calling shovel-ready traditional infrastructure investments, tax breaks, thinking that the trickle-down will actually lead to uh, better economic uh, performance. And so there's a really robust debate in Europe, just like there there is here in the United States, and I think we're seeing that globally, about um, the costs versus the benefits of addressing climate change. And um, I think what we have to see is more companies assessing what that looks like for them and where they're positioning their companies, recognizing that we are going to address climate change. The science requires that we address climate change and that we regulate these greenhouse gas emissions. So are companies going to continue to fight it or they're going to diversify or reposition their investments to take advantage of that coming regulation? And what I'm seeing is with, at least here in the United States, with the election of Barack Obama, with the congressional leadership coming in, a lot of people, a lot of the utilities and others are seeing the writing on the wall that they will be regulated and that they need to reposition to take advantage of that regulation and diversify, create new joint ventures in renewable energy and uh, incentivize investments in energy efficiency. 
Lewis, a related issue is, is the question of, of offsets, whether companies can or countries or organizations can offset their carbon emissions, and that often involves forests. Uh, let's address offsets because it's kind of this murky area where some people don't even really understand what offsets are. Are they legitimate? So, you know, let's address – can you just speak to offsets and whether they're legitimate or, or, or what kinds of offsets are legitimate? Well, um, again, what we've done in California is set up a system for forests to, to really produce credible um, – um, offsets from forests with integrity. And offsets provide emission reductions from sectors that aren't under the cap. And they provide many benefits to a, to a cap-and-trade system. Uh, one of the benefits is they provide reductions early on in, in, uh, in the implementation of the program. So um, you have reductions while technology is being innovated. Um, they also provi- provide a way to, to um, reduce costs and allow businesses to meet their caps at the most with the most uh, cost effective mechanism so buy, buy their way out of the problem or is that a way to- well they have to be real emission reductions and this is part of what we need to do with forests is develop the mechanism where we can compensate uh, forest um, nations in tropical countries for conserving their forests for uh, for protecting them and avoiding the emissions that would come if they would be cut and burned so we need a credible system. Again, the strength of the governor's MOU is to create a mechanism to provide high-quality offsets from forests with integrity. We think it can be done. We are doing it here in California, up at the Garcia Forest in Mendocino County, where uh, we're producing credits that have been certified uh, to a state-approved standard by the Air Resources Board. They've been purchased by Pacific Gas and Electric for their Climate Smart program. So, again, we have a model here in California that we want to export um, to the United Nations process on how to produce credible offsets from forests. So there's one, is, so there's one in the state that sort of meets the state standards, and there's lots of other offsets out there. Are you saying that may not be up to snuff? Well, right now there's there's a lot of activity in the voluntary market, and there isn't a, uh, any mechanism. Uh, there are no standards for uh, consumers, so it, it's it's um, been described as the wild west out there for offsets. So, I think that's something that the the um, uh, federal government has looked at. Uh, there were some bills last year in Sacramento. Uh, the challenge is to develop a set of standards for offsets that doesn't constrain the innovation in new uh, projects and new offset types and doesn't constrain the market because the, the, the offset market, voluntary offset market, is, is growing very rapidly like the regulated um, market. But we think offsets are an important part, uh, component of a cap-and-trade program. Uh, they're in the European uh, system, they're in the United Nations system, and they're in the California system, or they're proposed to be in the California system. Amy Christensen, there are third-party agencies that, that do certify. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the, the different standards out there for, for carbon offsets. I was just going to say there's a difference between the compliance market where you have regulated operations opportunities for offsetting, such as under what's called the Clean Development Mechanism within the international uh, UN framework. And in that, there are standards to measure and ensure that those offsets or greenhouse gas emission reductions are real and additional. And basically, you're paying for something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so when you offset your emissions, you're paying to protect a forest that otherwise really would have been cut down. And so it's ensuring that those standards are robust and you know that what you're paying for is making a difference. And in the voluntary markets, which is what we might do um, here with a company like TerraPass and others, they are working with, uh, there's a voluntary carbon standard that's been developed to set a baseline for quality greenhouse gas emission reduction so that you know that what you're doing is additional to what what would have happened otherwise. And so that's becoming increasingly adopted by these companies and others who are selling you carbon offsets. I think what's most important for offsets is the politics of this issue. Offsets help bring in sectors like forests and agriculture agriculture that probably are not going to be regulated on an economy-wide cap-and-trade program. So as Congress moves forward, it's an opportunity for farmers and others to get income from changing their practices to reduce emissions, to sequester greenhouse gas emissions through the management of land that's better not just for global warming, but it's better for the impacts on waterways and on life, uh, wildlife in, uh, to take advantage of the opportunities of our open space. And so if we structure our regulation in the United States and internationally to value changes in how we manage land and forests, offsets can be an important tool. The critical issue is the quality. And so ensuring that we have third parties out there validating that, yes, what you're paying for is making a difference. And it will help offsets from, from avoided deforestation, um, protecting forests that would have been cut down otherwise. It is fast and cheap, and it helps 
bring in other sectors and other countries who otherwise may not be supportive of an international agreement, a country like Brazil being uh, rewarded for changing the practices to protect the vast forests they have that can play a big role in addressing climate change. Amy Christensen is founder and CEO of Christensen Global Strategies. We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club of California. Tony Brunello, your Deputy Secretary uh, for the California Resources Agency, do uh, you want to comment on offsets? Yeah, I was just going to say, the, the discussion of offsets often gets lost into the bigger picture of what you're trying to do. And you, the bigger picture is you want to reduce emissions. So what do you have in front of you? You've got regulations, you've got market mechanisms. The discussion often goes into the, the netherworld of either or. And in California, it's one of the things we're looking at, that you need both. You need regulations to have your back, but you also need to develop a market mechanism system. That then goes into a cap and trade, which means a cap on emissions, which means you have a target that you have to meet. Offsets fits into that. It's a cost reduction method because greenhouse gas emission reductions in Tulare County are exactly the same as in Brazil. So that it's taking advantage of the sense that there might be cheaper ways to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions in Brazil than it would in Tulare County. But what is important, and this is underlying your question, is that there have been horrible offset projects that if you read the paper, you most likely have read them or if you pick up The Economist, there's tons of articles about really crummy projects and there's people who are making a lot of money off of these things. Where we sit in California, we have a very strict system set up to ensure that what we are are talking about offsets are one, they're going to be restricted. They're not going to allow all the emissions to be that way. Second is you have to have clear rules so that whatever a carbon molecule that's going to be in Brazil is going to be exact, it's going to be real, it's going to be measurable, you can verify it. All these things have to be exactly the same in Brazil as it is in Tulare County. Otherwise, you guys are all going to be witnessing this through our rulemaking process as well. You can throw it out the window because then these reductions are not going to be real. So that offset picture needs to be put in that bigger per- perspective because it's a valuable tool. We're still learning, and God bless the people who are doing it in the voluntary market. Um, but we need more of that learning, and it's the path that we feel is the right way to move ahead. So there are scams out there, but it, it's going to be until these sort of these these certification standards are widely known that people have a confidence that some sort of good housekeeping seal of approval on these offsets. It sounds like we're a ways away from that. I think there's good offsets now, so I do think there's good projects. That but are, people don't know which ones they are, right? If there's all these scams out there, maybe professionals know, but from yeah. the consumer side, it's tough for us to know if we want to offset our plane trip or whatever. If you have any suggestions, tell us. Well, I, I, again, I wouldn't. I don't want to hog the space, but it, it's similar where you need, for example, like an FDIC for banks. You need something that's a standard that people are comfortable with walking away, that they don't have to know about the standard. They just know that it's backed by the federal government. Right. Because we don't have a regulated market in the U.S., there's nothing like that. But um, in, Is that something that, that we should have, one national standard for carbon offsets, where there's a little symbol that people recognize immediately that conveys trust and then... I don't know the details behind it, but I know that it means a good thing. I think it could be a good thing, but I say that with a caveat because I haven't thought enough about it. But I I, I think that sounds right. Well, as as Amy pointed out, there are programs like the California Climate Action Registry, the Voluntary Carbon Standard. There are credible uh, offset accreditation, validation services out there. Uh, And so... Part of the challenge is to get those out into the public realm more. more Amy Christensen? Yeah. Sorry, just quickly, I was going to say that um, I think that a few bad actors have really tarnished the overall market and that the whole role for offsets and for the clean development mechanism was to help finance projects that otherwise wouldn't happen. And so uh, having worked in the past on Latin American uh, energy issues, it was an opportunity to make renewable energy and energy efficiency more cost competitive with the dirtier alternatives. And so it was helping finance geothermal and wind projects in Costa Rica instead of what might have otherwise been a bunker diesel plant. And so really showing that actually the cheaper alternative was dirtier and that by paying for the greenhouse gas emission reductions from the wind power project or from the solar project, you're helping finance a project that wouldn't otherwise happen. And there are a lot of projects that are being certified through the Voluntary Carbon Standard and through the Clean Development Mechanism under the UN Framework Convention that are quality projects. But uh, unfortunately, it hasn't been consistent for sure. One of the key issues here uh, in 
touching on offsets and, and forests are the question of China and India. And obviously, they were front and center, a uh, big part of this, and the big issue uh, in these negotiations is who cuts first and who, who cuts deepest. Uh, Louis, what did you, and I would guess I'd put Brazil in there as well as a, as a large growing economy with a big forest. Um, what did you see in Poland in terms of China, India, or the, the big developing economies? Well, I think one of the areas that was encouraging uh, in Poznan was um, the fact that several developing countries came to the, um, the conference with pledges to adopt national plans to cut emissions. Um, South Africa, Mexico, and China all had national emission reduction plans that they announced in, in Poland. And, and Brazil went, uh, made a declaration that they uh, would cut deforestation by 70%. So this was really, I think, encouraging to see developing nations step up and say, acknowledge that they had a role to play in addressing uh, global emissions and they were willing to share part of the burden. And that's the challenge with the next treaty to figure out how that burden is going to be shared. But this was important to hear developing countries um, really make a, a, a pledge. Are those pledges binding? Not yet, no. But then maybe a lot of the U.S. pledges aren't either, right? I mean... Uh... Well, the U.S. Didn't made no pledges. The well, U.S. right. <laughs> They, they made some nice speeches. That, that was about but it. But even Obama's pledges aren't, aren't binding yet. He has nothing right other than California. There's very little been put into it you know, with the teeth of law in the United States. But right. But when Kyoto was was adopted, the developing nations did did not acknowledge that they were willing to make uh, changes in their economies to address climate change. And so there's there's been a change since that. And that, that was an important message, I think, from, from Poznan. So there was a rhetorical change from developing countries in Poland that you think is a good indication of, of progress and where, where they're going. Yeah, I think it was a favorable sign. Yeah. Uh, just another thing to add, is that they're always historically the, the I think it was G77, or it's, it's mm-hmm. with uh, the developing country nations that had a very strong coalition to push away a cap-and-trade system. What we've seen uh, in the last, I, I don't know, I think the last couple of years, but that fraction has split up because it's more complicated now. I think people are coming up with their own positions. There's different countries that are seeing that it would benefit to actually have a cut or maybe to have a sector-wide cap. Um, and so it's definitely people are having negotiation strategies that are looking at having a cap, and then this all fits into national politics, and that's the part that I think is most interesting we're talking about climate, but there's a few things about finances that I think our governor's talking about probably as we speak. Um, um, but other issues that, you know, are going to be playing into how a climate negotiation might move forward. And so I think that's it's going to be more interesting to figure out horse trading, frankly, to get something moving over the next year or two to have something that gets developing countries involved, but also gets the U.S. and other major countries to look at the next Kyoto, so to say. So explain that. What horses are going to be traded? For example, um, if I knew that, I'd be getting paid a lot more. <laughs> so, are you saying between, um, say, I, California and the federal government, between the Western Climate no, Initiative pushing the U.S.? Is that what no, you're saying? No, basically, I'm saying amongst countries. Okay. Uh, so, countries, for example, China uh, is looking at heavy uh, emissions from coal emissions, from their cement industry, other things where they're figuring out where their reductions could, should come from. But they've also got other trade agreements going on with the U.S., for example, uh, or other European countries. So climate is now being elevated and I think being put next to some of these other major trade issues sure. that are dealing with serious finances as they consider what they should be doing internally. So, Amy, that raises an architecture question, whether this getting to this number of reductions will happen through one massive uh, world-saving treaty, or will it be some other type of multilateral or smaller treaties that, that somehow add up to a whole? Again, if I knew that, no, it's a great question. Um, I think that people are arguing on either side of that. The, the context for the international negotiations under the UN Framework Convention, the benefit of negotiating with all the countries there, you do have opportunity under the UN negotiations to have these different coalitions negotiate amongst themselves. Um, and so there are different groups of countries who will get together and pre-negotiate where they stand and then come to the table. And so when people say, oh, it's too hard to negotiate among 175 countries, actually these pre-negotiations happen and then people come to the table. Um, and so... 
And the benefit of having all of those countries at the table is you have developing countries who are going to be impacted the most from this to have that moral authority and say, you must act, you created this problem, and to really push against the pragmatic approach to this. Oh, we're concerned about economic costs. Well, you know, we're the ones who are going to be impacted the hardest. You guys at least have had the economic benefit of the past, of polluting for the past, where you can allocate some of the resources that you've had to help reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. We're being impacted. We have fewer financial resources to adapt to those impacts that you've generated. So countries in Africa that are facing the real impacts of impacts on agricultural uh, productivity, the impact of drought and floods that they're seeing. And so having that moral voice to counter the pushback from the developed countries saying, oh, it's going to be too hard for us to address is very important to consider when people uh, consider just pulling apart the major emitters to have a separate negotiation among China, India, the United States, Europe, Japan, uh, potentially Brazil and Indonesia because of the emissions from forests. So pulling aside just those emitters, while it sounds like that's an easier agreement to come to because that's really who you need to come to agreement for 80 percent of global emissions, for instance, the argument back is that you don't have people at the table who are getting impacted the most and who can help push that uh, to agreement. I'd agree with Tony that the G77, the developing countries, used to be very much a block and uh, now it's increasingly diversifying because some countries are seeing there being a benefit to them to having a global deal so that they can bring assets from Brazil, from Indonesia, saying we have forests to protect and these financial flows will benefit us if we get to a global agreement. Speaking of financial flows, there's an adaptation fund, uh, which is to help developing countries handle the impact of climate change. Um, some people would say it's, it's not big enough, uh, but, but it's certainly certainly a start. Um, would any of you like to speak to the adaptation fund, Lewis? Yeah, well, first of all, um, money for it comes out of the clean development mechanism. So offsets can generate, do generate money for adaptation, and that, that's important. Uh, and the role for offsets. Um, also, with the G77, they did come out in, in Poznan in agreement. Um, they recognized the importance of, of adaptation uh, for healthy and resilient ecosystems, and they linked uh, ecosystem-based adaptation with uh, community-based adaptation, recognizing that healthy ecosystems are essential for healthy communities. So that's one area where they were united, uh, and uh, we feel there was some progress made on um, recognizing the importance of adaptation. And so we need to go to the next step and provide a dedicated funding stream for adaptation in the next treaty uh, when we develop the, the, the horse trading that Tony's talking about. Lewis Blumberg is director of the California Climate Team at the Nature Conservancy, and we're discussing climate change and the international negotiations at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, the road to a deal in Copenhagen goes through Washington. We touched on po domestic policy a little bit. Let's circle back to that before we go to the audience, audience questions. Uh, a lot of confirmation hearings going on right now. Uh, President-elect Obama is putting his team in place. Uh, Secretary of Energy is happening. Uh, Secretary of State-designate uh, Clinton was asked about uh, climate change. Uh, Tony, how do you see the connection between California, what it's done, and, and will that sort of roll up into a, a federal... Uh, federal policy? Very good question. Um, I mean, the one thing that gives us hope is that there's a lot of Californians in the new administration. So that's, uh, you know, many who are just a few miles from where we're sitting. So uh, I think on that sense, we're all pretty optimistic and we welcome the competition that we think is going to happen between the Congress, between the House, the Senate, and the administration on moving something forward. Um, not to get into wonky things, but basically what we talk about in state government right now is to make sure that we're not preempted. And that word will come up a lot. And we want to make sure that what we've done in California and the progress that we've made, we're allowed to continue on our path, but that we won't have our efforts squashed in a new uh, federal bill that comes forward. So we think that what we've developed can very much match with what the Obama administration has presented and many of the bills that are on Capitol Hill. So I personally think that they will mesh. You're, you're waiting for Obama to call? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that they will blend quite well on the cap-and-trade side, but also other efforts that are moving in terms of, you know, I talked about the, uh, the, the uh, regulations that we have to reduce emissions from cars, um, also having a low-carbon fuel standard, renewable uh, portfolio standards, and promoting renewables. These are all things that we've had as priorities and we're working on, and we have a benefit that we have. You have supported staff to push these things forward in California. So there's a lot to learn from what we've done, and that's the way we're presenting it to the administration, that there are things that 
they should be paying attention to. We should also clarify that California has been joined by other Western states and Canadian provinces, and I believe Mexican states, in the Western Climate Initiative. So it's not just California. It's much of the, uh, the Western uh, Northern Hemisphere, really. That's right. And it's, it's called the Western Climate Initiative. Basically, as anyone starts going into this, it's the same as, as you're dealing with the nation, if you want to have a global impact, you need to start stepping outside of your boundaries. So we very quickly realized if we wanted to do a cap-and-trade program and to have reductions, we need to influence those around us. So there's other states that have just as much leadership roles as we do. So this coalition is working to develop a regional cap-and-trade program that we can all work together on reducing our emissions and being progressive and then also carrying that message to the administration. Tony Bernello is Deputy Secretary of the California Resources Agency for Energy and Climate Change. Uh, Lewis Blumberg with the Nature Conservancy. What do you think absolutely has to be in U.S. domestic legislation for it to be effective? And what can't be there? What, what's absolutely off the table? Well, we need a very tight and declining cap um, that reduces emissions uh, to levels that will protect people and, and the environment. Uh, and that, that's essential. Um, um, I also think we need to have offsets to be part of that uh, so that we have flexible cost compliance mechanisms. Um, what would be off the table? Hmm. Giving away all uh, permits, something like that, do you think that 100 uh, percent auction should happen? Well, I think the, the, uh, the allocation of the permits is, is, um, is, is probably a political um, uh, decision. Um, there's probably no real right way to predict uh, economically if there's, there's a way to do that. I think in the European uh, trading system there was some problems setting the, setting the, the levels and, um, and the price signal was not uh, robust enough to really drive the market. So um, um, our organization favors full uh, auction as soon as, as feasible. Do you have a specific number for the amount of concentration of carbon in the atmosphere? Uh, there's been a lot of talk. In fact, Senator Kerry recently, I think in the confirmation hearings with Senator Clinton, he said scientists have gone from 550 to 450 to now 350 parts per million as, as the, the uh, highest acceptable amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Does the Nature Conservancy have a aiming for a number? You know, we don't have a, a set number. We're, we're watching the science change uh, weekly and, and um, Two fifties uh, coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. For, forecasts that were made uh, for for ice, uh, the, the thickness of the polar ice cap, for example, um, in 2000, that was supposed to diminish in half by the year uh, three um, in in 100 years, 2100. Now they're saying that's going to happen uh, twice as fast, and by 2050. So the, the science is, is continuing to give us new information. We think it needs to be science based, um, and we'll see where, where what Congress can do with it. Amy Christensen, what do you? Uh, business is not a monolith, but the, from the clients that, that you speak to, what do you think businesses want to see in the cap and trade legislation? Well, again, they're they're not a monolith, but certainly the ones I try, try to work with are those who are really trying to see that predictability. They know that climate regulation is coming, and they want to see it sooner rather than later because they want to prepare for it and position their companies to take advantage of that. So to become more efficient and to, to incentivize innovation. And that's what we're seeing from some of the companies um, who I've worked with formally or informally. And it's, it's fascinating to watch a company like Walmart, who on the sustainability side has, they initiated this and as they got into the work on sustainability found that energy efficiency was a great uh, cost reduction tool for them and also incentivized innovation to their suppliers as they, as they started ranking their suppliers and putting a uh, better shelf space to companies that had cleaner products and more efficient products for their customers, and they felt it was good for their customers because they reduced uh, energy costs for their customers to sell them compact fluorescent light bulbs. And so it's very interesting to see companies increasingly recognizing the upside of this issue and wanting that predictability in place sooner so that they can take advantage of the benefits of regulating carbon and the benefits of valuing these environmental uh, assets and um, potential liabilities on their balance sheet. So I think what we have is we have um, actually a cap, what i moderated a session of uh, corporate um, uh, sustainability officers in September and in the discussion around what are the big eco issues that will completely disrupt business, there was a lot of discussion about climate and energy security and water. And then by the end of the discussion, there was a call for regulating environmental, not just 
carbon, but also putting a value on water and fixing capitalism, basically what people call greening GDP, to more effectively drive where does money flow in our global financial system. We are not effectively uh, protecting the environment because we don't value the assets that nature brings to bear. And I think that's where we're moving increasingly is to recognize the value of a mangrove forest, for instance, is much greater standing than a shrimp farm that replaces it. While that brings income to one one business with a shrimp farm, it actually uh, reduces the fishery benefits of the mangroves, which has nursery benefits, the impacts of storms that it protects from much greater value, and, let that, and yet that isn't valued within our capitalist system. So I think increasingly businesses are recognizing this opportunity for innovation that comes from regulating and valuing nature. We're about to go to the audience question portion. There's a microphone in uh, the aisle over there. So if you'd like to ask a question, uh, you need to be at the microphone to, to do it. And I will just ask uh, our panelists to address one simple question really easily, uh, one <laughs> complex question quickly in terms of um, we're about to uh, potentially have a treaty that needs 67 votes to get through the Senate. Uh, this happened before about 10 years ago. It didn't turn out so well. Uh, real briefly, as people are lining up, uh, what are the lessons from Kyoto that you think we ought to avoid uh, repeating this time around? Tony? I'll answer a longer one in the questions, but it's fascinating because a lot of people we work with um, – had, we're working on that Bird Hagel resolution. You can't do it alone. The administration needs to have the legislature and have support. Otherwise, you can't go anywhere. So you can't go out and make a treaty. Uh, Obama can't just go out and say, here's our targets, let's rumble. It really is about working across the economy. So I think that's a fundamental lesson that I hope they learned. And we saw 50, was there 50-something congressional staffers uh, in, in Poland uh, a month ago. So in theory, they got that message. Uh, Congress was not as included last time around. Amy, your thoughts on lessons from Kyoto? I actually think that's the primary one, is this has to be a partnership between the administration and Congress. And we're already seeing that with the stimulus package. Uh, the Obama transition did not say to the Hill, here's what we want to see. They were up there working collaboratively on building the stimulus package to ensure that whatever moves through will be able to be signed by the president. Um, and so I think that um, increasingly they are learning that lesson. You asked how many business people were in Bali versus Poland, and what we saw was there were hardly any um, congressional, there were very few congressional staffers in Bali, and yet there were close to 50 of them in um, Poznan positioning, recognizing things are going to change quickly with Obama coming into power. Let's go to audience questions. We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club. Please. Hi, good evening. Uh, thank you, panel. Uh, my name is Peter Prowse. I'm an attorney with uh, Briscoe, Iverson, and Basil here in San Francisco. Uh, I also advise the uh, Republic of Palau on uh, climate change issues. Um, I, w I wonder if you could um, speak to whether there is a, even a basic agreement on what a new uh, treaty would uh, hope to achieve. Is it just a, a matter of reducing emissions, or do we want to achieve certain climate uh, effects at the end of the day? And is there any kind of agreement on just the basic terms of the debate? Is this just... Uh, an economic matter of properly pricing carbon and water and these other other uh, elements of the ecosystem, or is it as um, as uh, Senator and, and um, uh, Secretary of State designee Clinton uh, said the other day in her confirmation hearing, is this a matter of uh, national security that isn't um, so susceptible to uh, cost-benefit analyses? Thank you. Great. What's the end game here? <laughs> All of the uh, above. <laughs> No, I just I participated in a uh, conversation about energy and climate change and security with a lot of former flag officers, admirals, generals, others about a uh, month and a half, two months ago. And what was incredibly um, interesting was it was an, it was a conversation about energy, and yet to a person, climate was wrapped up in their discussion about energy. There was no separation of it. There was a recognition that climate change is a national security issue and that you can't separate energy policy from climate policy and that they very much understood it from a strategic positioning and allocation of military resources based upon our reliance on imported sources of energy. Um, and so I think the politics of this have to shift when we have the business voices, the security voices, um, labor, um, youth with a moral call to action. Um, and the scientists really, it, it has to be, um, if we have a very diverse community coming together around promoting action on climate change because uh, people are seeing that it's actually in their interest. Well, well, I, was just gonna, I was just thinking it's always interesting. There should just be, when you really start trying to wrestle with it, there should only be one indicator and it should be 350 or 450, in my mind. Like, to focus everything in on, that's really what it's about, is to lower concentrations of greenhouse gases. But then, as I mentioned with the passing of the Lieberman-Warner bill, 
not passing, but as it was presented in, in Congress, you had every lobbying group that came forward to present their interests. It was largely about money and revenue that would be generated, but every interest was at the table. And I think it, everybody is saying that if you're having something that's going to go across 75% of the economy, just speaking for the U.S., everybody's involved. And so it hits on all topics. NASA scientist James Hansen, of course, has been out there leading the charge uh, to 350 as the main benchmark. Another question yes. from the audience, please. Yes, hi. Holly Kaufman. I was a negotiator for the defense and the State Departments on the Kyoto Treaties in the Clinton administration with my colleagues on the panel. And um, I had two quick questions for you. One is, what do you make of the recent announcement by ExxonMobil that they were calling for a carbon tax versus particularly the group of companies, the U.S. CAP, that just came out today with their proposal for the cap-and-trade legislation. And my second question is, what if Poznan fails? What if the U.S. doesn't pass what the rest of the global community considers adequate to bring to Poznan? And the talk collapse. Right. Exxon, the carbon tax seems to be kind of... Uh, Rearing, uh, coming back, not from the dead, but... Uh, well, well, I think that the, the, the problem with a carbon tax is that it doesn't guarantee the environmental outcome. So if we're trying, if we need to reach 450 or 350, whatever that number is, the tax doesn't guarantee we're go- what the emission reduction level will be. So we're going to have to go through the, the political machinations to pass a tax, uh, and we may not get the environmental outcome. If we don't, we'll have to go back and reconfigure the tax. So um, that'll, that'll be very cumbersome to achieve. On the other hand, the economists like the simplicity uh, of, of a tax. It sends a clear price signal. Economists love it. Most politicians hate it. Uh, Amy? The, I think the tax issue is fascinating because some companies feel like it's predictable. They know how to cost it out. They can put it into their business planning. They understand this is the price per ton of my emissions. It's set. It's not going to change, whereas in cap and trade, it will fluctuate based upon market supply and demand. Um, however, others feel like a move by a company like ExxonMobil to call for a tax is they may be doing that um, because they see the momentum towards cap and trade and may be trying to confuse the discussion around is there real consensus around cap and trade as the best approach to keep costs low and to get the kind of uh, results that we want to see. And so there's some back and forth about why are companies coming forward? Is this really a sincere weighing in by companies who are calling for a tax to say this is something predictable that I can integrate? into my business operations, or is this something to try to confuse thing, things and the momentum that we're seeing around cap and trade on the Hill? And I would just wanted to say on the 350 issue, um, certainly we're already above um, 350, and we're seeing the impacts of climate change. And so the call to get back to 350 is because scientists are increasingly recognizing that we're already seeing the impacts of going above that level. And so how can we even think that 450 is going to be safe when we're already seeing the impacts and potentially getting to those dangerous tipping points without getting anywhere near 450? So I think it's an important point. A number of folks are here from 350.org. We have a number of questions in the audience. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Tom Van Dyke with the Royal Bank of Canada. A couple questions to follow up. It's not only just the CEO of Exxon. It's Jim Henson of NASA that actually is presenting and promoting a tax. Mm-hmm. And Michael Bloomberg from New York. Right. And I, mm-hmm. and I think the part of the problem or issue may be that the European experiment with the two markets that they've had, the first one failing and the second one, where's carbon priced at today? 13 bucks a ton, down from 27 no, but seriously, it was, a 13, well, it was a 13 bucks three weeks ago. I don't know where it is exactly today. I didn't look before You're I left the, the bank, office. Right? What's that? You work for a bank? I, 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 yeah, I mean, yes. listen, we have a cap <laughs> and trade, we have a cap and trade component, but the, the, the issue is that I was talking to a friend of mine who runs the Moore Hedge Fund. He runs the energy side of the, a very large hedge fund in New York. He, I said, so cap and trade or tax? He goes, you don't want to let someone like me price carbon. I'll game that market all day long. So do you have a so, question for the so audience? The, yeah, so the question is, is that even though you, it's a, it takes a political will to pass a tax, it also takes political will to get the cap at 350. The lobbying on the corporate side is going to be intense. So how do you stop the market under a cap and trade situation from being gamed? How do you stop it from not just being another financial instrument that blows up, that doesn't accomplish what ultimately it's trying to do? And instead of printing money to solve the problem like we're doing with the current crisis on the financial side, we have a situation, we have a billion people displaced from climate change, a much more costly situation to deal with. So how do you stop that for the market? Can the market be gamed? Is the market solution the answer? 
The market can be gamed. I mean, I think um, we've seen with the oil markets, with the speculators getting into the oil markets and seeing what they could do to move oil prices, right? And so the question that some people are putting on the table is to say only regulated entities can be in the trading market. So only those companies that are being regulated can trade amongst themselves, keep it to be a closed market, so you can't have financial speculators and others participating in the market. The pushback on that is that you want as big a market as possible to keep the costs as low as possible. And so there's some back and forth about how to structure it, but fundamentally the rules have to be set into place so that you are enforcing um, and monitoring the effectiveness of the market on a very active basis. And so what you have to have are governments in place who understand how to create these markets and regulate them. So you have an equivalent of the Securities Exchange Commission that's actually doing its job, unlike perhaps in the last eight years, um, and uh, that's enforcing and regulating and monitoring these markets. The good news with someone like Carol Browner coming in uh, to be a senior uh, lead on the climate and energy issues is she spent eight years regulating polluters in the United States as head of the Environmental Protection Agency and took them on in rewriting the rules of the new source review under the Clean Air Act. I mean, this is somebody who knows enforcement and knows some of the potential games that can be played under regulation. We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club. If I could just follow up on that, would a tax be faster to implement? Because what you just described sounds complex and would take a lot of time. And I mean, some countries have been at this for a while and the U.S. has been pushing the market solution. Would a tax be faster if we really needed to get 350 quickly? I think what would be, make the most sense is we, may, we do a test on ExxonMobil and do a carbon tax with them first. <laughs> that might be helpful, and it might fund a lot of what we need. So that could be the start. But as an economist, a carbon tax makes complete sense. It's where you should start, theoretically, and it always makes sense. And anybody who does economic, economics, it's where you should go. And then you get into the real world, and people think you're on crack. So it's it, it really the cap-and-trade is really the horse that people are riding, and it's hitting on Holly's question before. Is it a failure if you don't move ahead on Poznan? We've been a failure for eight years, frankly, nationally. And I think having anything that people are fighting to have new suggestions, whether it's a carbon tax or whether it's cap-and-trade, action is, frankly, success. And I think that's what we're looking at in California is that you need all of them. You can't just say either or. You need to look at regulations to push things forward, but you also do, do a cap-and-trade. Carbon tax, great. I think we should try it. But I think... Do a portfolio approach. Try different approaches to try and reach that goal. But go back to what you want, 350 or 450. I mean, that's, that's really what it's about. And, it, and we're going to fail. We're definitely going to fail. And we have to move and do something. So. Tony Bernalo is Secret- Deputy Secretary for Energy and Climate Change at the California Resources Agency. And we're discussing global climate change at the Commonwealth Club of California. Another question from the audience, please. Sure. Thank you. Adam Cern from TerraPass. Uh, since it was brought up earlier, I wanted to mention briefly that A number of companies have formed an alliance that is committed to a code of best practice for offsets, and they include adhering to some of the standards that you mentioned earlier, the Voluntary Carbon Standard, the California Climate Action Registry, and the CDM methodologies, and TerraPass is part of that. We're also uh, separate. Have a question for the audience? Quickly. For for the panelists, please. Uh, My question is about the Poland talks and the timing of the Obama administration's actions, could there be a situation where Obama and team aren't fully ready to uh, develop a negotiating position that they know can be backed by the Congress in time for the Copenhagen talks? And if that occurs, is there any possibility of extending the UN talks in order to reach agreement? Can we do this in the next 11 months? Who wants to take that one on? Um, Well, I would argue that um, the world uh, made very, very clear in Bali that we had to come to agreement in Copenhagen. And certainly the science is telling us we need to come to agreement in Copenhagen. And so there's no opportunity to talk about what's feasible. What the science is telling us, we have to act. And so I would I, this all this pushback about it's too hard, we're in an economic challenging times. Well, first of all, we're seeing increasingly the costs are lower than we think they're going to be from environmental regulations. Always companies innovate, technologies develop, and opportunities are created. And so um, I, I am arguing for a comprehensive approach. We have momentum behind the clean energy economy as a central piece of our economic recovery program. I would argue that we need to wrap energy legislation with climate legislation. Um, we need that price point on carbon to help incentivize deployment of clean energy technologies and for clean technology companies to be arguing for regulating carbon to help incentivize their technologies to get out to market. Um, And that by 
when you pass energy and climate change legislation together, the climate regulation won't come into place till something like 2012, most likely. And so you have a few years for that energy legislation that will help free up energy efficiency opportunities, uh, renewable energy investment opportunities, upgrading of the electricity grid, making them more modern to enable those technologies to deploy and reduce greenhouse gas emissions at a much lower level than if we hadn't passed the energy legislation. So, um, and that we have to the sooner we try to move that forward, the sooner we'll actually have indication from the Congress about what's feasible and therefore what we can go to Copenhagen with. So that argues for actually urgently moving um, the administration's priorities forward on climate and energy. Amy Christensen is founder and CEO of Christensen Global Strategies. We have about seven minutes and three questions, so let's try to get through them all. Please. Right. Um, I own a public relations firm called Antenna that specializes in clean tech. So as an observer of um, you might say, words and ideas. I believe that the majority of Americans who have even heard the term climate change just think it means things are getting a little balmier, maybe the sea level's rising, they don't see a problem. So as a wordsmith, I suggest that if we um, made a shift from the phrase climate change to start saying climate instability or climate chaos, both of which are, are true and point at the real uh, danger to say, oh, global food production, um, I think that would help get some movement, and I'm very interested in whether or not the panelists think that would scare people too much. Should, are we using the right language here? Well, we, I, I can rest, and I keep trading eyes with, there's Will Travis who's here. He might even be a good person to talk to. He's from our BCDC who's doing uh, climate change impact plans for the Bay Area. The Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Sorry, thank you. Exactly. And, but sea level rise is a real issue in the Bay Area. And I wouldn't, we always balance with trying to scare people with saying the sky is falling, climate chaos, to just the climate change. And, and I've, I'm a policy person, I'm an economist by training, I'm not a scientist, a natural scientist. But when you look at the science, um, it's not clear enough in, if you're speaking for California to make those strong claims. Now, if I was in Bangladesh or some of the low-lying countries, then it's, it's a different, different ballgame. So it depends on your message in different places. So, Next question, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Peter Udidia, ordinary citizen of the city of San Francisco. Um, <laughs> and I think I'm not alone in uh, being a person who is interested uh, in investing in carbon offsets, try to mitigate my own carbon footprint. I'd like to hear a little more, though, if I could, from the panel about how to really evaluate what's out there now. We've heard from TerraPass. I'm familiar with another nonprofit called CarbonFund.org. Uh, they each say that they have third-party evaluators who are certifying in some fashion their projects. But what can an ordinary individual like, like myself do to be ensured that what I invest in is actually going to have some, some impact? Well, I think the fastest, cheapest thing you can do is to, uh, they say, cock is cheap. Cock your windows and doors. Um, starts, first of all, address your home's emissions first, right? And then once you've done that, go to the offsets. When you go to the offset market, I think that um, the point was made earlier about the voluntary carbon standard. Look for that seal. Look for the California um, Climate Action Registry standard and, or look for compliance with international standards under the clean development mechanism. So there are certain standards that are quality that you can turn to, and a number have been reports reports have been done on that but i think you know the, the best thing you can start with obviously is energy efficiency first well and i would just add that the uh, california air resources board has approved um, a set of protocols from the california climate action registry for voluntary action under the state law ab32 so there is a state sanctioned system where you can you can go to and, uh, of course, Governor Schwarzenegger's out there touting that we all keep our tires uh, pumped, you know, to the right pressure, uh, to the appropriate pressure. Uh, Tony, he was here a while ago, and, and he made that claim. I didn't get a chance to ask him whether that, that uh, he's done that for his Hummers and whether that means they've gone from <laughs> 20 mile, 10 miles a gallon to 10.6 miles a gallon. Um, the new one is also use less water. The, the new Hummers? No, in terms of the other message, you can oh. do your, uh, your, your tire ones, but water is another big one. Water is actually bigger than energy here in California as far as reducing greenhouse gas emissions, saving energy better through reducing your water consumption even than reducing your energy consumption. So take shorter showers. Especially hot water because of the energy to heat it up. Please. I'm Erin Horbach. I'm part of SEP's sustainability program working on um, a cap-and-trade application to support companies uh, to optimize their financial performance under cap-and-trade. 
And I have two questions. Um, one question is, um, what challenges will be, will be met politically to enact federal legislation when regional initiatives are so successful? Take the Reggie $65 billion auction that just, just took place. How ready are states going to be to give up that revenue source for something federal? That's my first question. Maybe I'll stop there. You're good. Thank you for doing that. Picking one. So who wants to tackle that one? Uh, it, it actually hits just exactly on that question, which is just the, the horrible code work. And we keep throwing it, is uh, the, uh, the um, preemption of our system. So we are... Uh, so that means when the federals come in and tell you what to do. Exactly. The, the so that's come in and, and tell you what to do. And they just squash our system. And, and all of us have well, such... Do they squash the revenue that you're earning? Do they squash the revenue California is earning? Or do they squash the, the, the regulations and the, the progress we've made? Everything's on the table. They can do. They have that authority, and so our role is to show the benefits that we've developed, and to make that regional system national. We link with Reggie. We talk with them all the time. So it's it's going to be a, a fascinating year. Okay. Yeah. But but I do think those the regional systems and the state systems put increased pressure on on the federal government to to act and to act in ways that's that's more uh, more protective, and we get a better outcome from the process. Isn't it right. true that states have typically been more Progressive willing to go further than the federal government on environmental legislation? Well, there's a long history in California of California going first on environmental regulation. I think back to a point that was made earlier, what we saw in California was, was leadership from uh, the governor and leadership from the legislature and leadership from the administrative staff. We had that happening, which is now what we see in Congress. And I think that, that's going to create, um, as, as Amy pointed out, the power, the momentum to, to, to get something through that's uh, really strong and protective and um, We'll see what happens with these state systems, but we need to keep the, the pressure on for action. If, and, and what we're doing already at the state and regional level and, and the municipal level is really helpful. Amy, did you want to comment? Do okay. uh, you think that Henry Waxman is going to be more of a firebrand in the, in the House than, well, obviously, compared to John Dingell, of course, he's very different, but do you think <laughs> that Waxman's going to be really key in, in driving this further than maybe even Nancy Pelosi may, may, uh, may like or want? Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just going to say, just quickly, we have an incredible opportunity. We have a bully pulpit. We have a president who's who's, uh, president-elect who's an effective communicator and who can take advantage of communicating with the American public. The transparency that we've seen from the transition and what we expect from this government um, and and the call for service and to have everyone be involved in government and be part of the solution. It's an incredible opportunity through technology and the, um, the natural instincts that this president has and the people around him. It's exciting to see how he's going to, how it could change everything about what's possible in Washington. Great. With that, our, our time is up. Uh, Amy Christensen is founder and CEO of Christensen Global Strategies. Louis Blumberg, director of the California Climate Team at the Nature Conservancy. And Tony Brunello, deputy secretary of the California Resources Agency uh, for Energy and Climate. I'm Greg Dalton, vice president of the Commonwealth Club. And now this meeting of Commonwealth Club and Climate One and Inform, one big happy family here, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you.